Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome. This is Cup of Joe, where we explore restoration history, and I'm your host, Karen Peter. Our guest today is a well-known Project Zion contributor, lecturer, participant, uh, reluctant or not, um, either way, usually, uh, with uh, with Charmaine. But today, we just have Tony Shabala-Smith. I shouldn't say just have. That sounds diminutive. I didn't mean that, Tony. I mean, we're lucky to have Tony Shabala-Smith. He is an associate professor and the Paul E. Morden Seminary Chair of Religion at Community of Christ Seminary and Graceland University. Tony also serves as a scripture and theology consultant for Community of Christ and chairs the theology formation team. In addition, he represents Community of Christ on the Faith and Order convening table of the National Council of Churches. And Tony and his partner Charmaine regularly work together in their many varied roles for Community of Christ Seminary, Graceland University, and the church, including Project Zion. So we're very happy to welcome him today. He is one of the featured presenters in the Historic Sites Foundation Spring Lecture Series. His lecture is titled Storm Clouds on the Horizon, the Competing Theologies of Elbert A. Smith and Roy A. Cheville. All of these uh, lectures have long and complicated titles. (laughs) Uh, sometimes hard to get through. So anyway, hi, Tony. Hi, Karen. How are you today? I'm pretty good. I viewed your lecture. I really enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thanks. Looking forward to the conversation, too. Your lecture discusses the divergent theological perspectives of these two church leaders. And to use a word that's popular now with social media, influencers. Mm -hmm. So Roy Cheville and Albert Smith. And before we kind of delve into what the perspectives were and how they impacted the church, I think our listening audience might appreciate kind of hearing a bit about each of these two um, people, who they were, and what were some of their important contributions to the life of the church. Sure. Well, I'll start with Albert A. Smith, uh, who was, uh, you know, approximately 20-some years older than Roy Cheville. Uh, Albert A. was born in 1871, and he died in 1959. And Albert A. was the son of David David Hiram Smith. So I guess if you want to think of it this way, uh, Albert A. Smith was a blood heir of the, of the, the founding dynasty of the Restoration Movement. And uh, he served in, in many important roles in the reorganization, including counselor to uh, his the partial brother, Fred M. Smith, um, in the first presidency. And Albert A. went into the role of presiding evangelist. At that time, it was more likely called presiding patriarch. Uh, Oh, around 18, let's see, it was around 1938, I think he went in. And he stayed in that role for 20 years uh, and was succeeded by Roy Chevelle in that office. Uh, so Albert A. then died in 1959. Roy Cheville had been be, became presiding evangelist uh, in ni- 1958, uh, as W. Wallace Smith's presidency began. 
So that's a little bit about Albert A. Uh, Albert A. was was articulate, thoughtful, a great writer, not formally educated, but a very extremely thoughtful and articulate person, very much shaped by and representing the old reorganization theology. I'll say more about that a little later. And uh, uh, Elbert A. had a lot of what you'd call street cred in the church of his of his day. Uh, very, very popular and much beloved minister in the church. And then Roy Cheville. Roy Cheville was a teenage convert to the church. Uh, so I mentioned he, uh, Roy Cheville. I, maybe I didn't mention it. Roy Cheville was born in 1897 and died in 1986. In fact, Charmaine and I were at the World Conference of 1986 when the presidency came in. I think it was an afternoon session and announced that Brother Cheville had passed away. On April 6th, if you can believe that, he somehow... Oh, how, how loyal of him. <laughs> he somehow somehow managed to, to, to hold on until April 6th. Um, so, Royceville, as I mentioned, was a teenage convert to the church, so he did not have a family history in it. And he came in with a sort of pragmatic outlook of, uh, well, if, if, if this pans out, I'll stay with it. If, if I think it's not all that good. I won't stay with it. But he obviously did stay with it. And um, in his day was perhaps the single most educated person in the church, perhaps uh, on par with Fred M. Smith. Fred M. Smith, of course, had a master's and a PhD. And Roy Cheville did master's and PhD work at the University of Chicago in the, in the famed divinity school there. So as far as I know, Roy Cheville was probably the first person in the church as a church member to go get formal theological training outside. That, that marks him as quite unique in that era, because in that era of the church, um, theological training was what those ministers who had no authority got in churches that were as the, as they said then, the churches of men and not the, not the true church. So yes. that was quite remarkable for him to have done that. But he did that um, because he was encouraged by the then president of Grayson College. We need to we need to do a religion program here and we need somebody to get some training. And we'd like for you to go to Chicago. That's the place to go. And so that's what Cheville did. And it took him a long time to finish his his degrees he did summer a lot of summer sessions uh, but finally finished his phd uh i can't remember the exact date but it was sometime in the 1940s i think when he finally finished it so, so this is interesting you you said that albert a smith had a lot of street cred in the church and here we we contrast that with roy Cheville, who had the academic credentials yeah, um, that that right off the bat sets up a very um, divergent picture of two individuals. It it certainly it certainly does, and you know we're gonna we're gonna follow this track here in a bit uh, because Roy Cheville's theological framework obviously is going to be very very different from Albert A's and from a lot of a lot of active church members' theological frameworks in the time, though. Oh, Roy Cheville's particular theological framework did not find him 
directly criticizing the origins or the history or the the theological underpinnings of the church in that day. Um, where Chaville would become critical would be he would he'd be critical of what I would call kind of magical views of religion or views of views of Christianity that sort of disempowered individuals from from improving themselves from doing you know from doing doing their own work on stuff uh, you know that so that's kind of where he, I'll say more about his framework here in a bit but yeah that's that's where he's going to be a, a critic okay so rather trying to interpret things for a new age without really looking at what they are on the bottom. It reminds me either of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. I'm so glad I'm not in your class anymore. So you can't say anything about the fact I can't remember. But one of them simply tried to interpret things so that people could live into them as opposed yeah. to really, really criticizing them. Yeah. Yeah. So let me back up to Albert A. So Albert A wrote lots of books, was a frequent, a frequent author in the Herald, was an editor of the Herald. Um, you know, spoke widely in the church in the United States. He wrote a book in 1945 called Restoration, A Study in Prophecy. And the title probably tells you where this is going. <laughs> so you, you've you heard us, and I'm sure many of our listeners have heard Charmaine and me talk about the old RLDS preaching charts, of which there are many different kinds, but perhaps the most famous is the the we call it the 1912 GF uh, Weston preaching chart, which essentially lays out in a, I don't know, it's probably 12 foot at least long canvas chart, the whole theology of the reorganization from creation to consummation, from beginning of things to end of things. Uh, and it has a large section that talks about God's various covenants to the ages and the the fallings away after those covenants. And essentially, it that chart is uh, a systematic theology of old reorganization theology. So for our, um, our LDS perspective folks, it looks a lot like the plan of salvation, only with way more detail. And what kind of looks to me is the game shoots and ladders, where <laughs> this will take you up and this will take you down. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Yes, the, the upward path is the path towards celestial glory. The downward path is the path towards, first of all, the pit or the prison house. And then you start, you see all kinds of shoots and ladders at that point. And the far, depending, I mean, there, these these charts were created for right or left-handed people. The one I've got in my head is for a right-handed person. So at the far, if you're facing the chart, the far left end of the chart is the three glories and the lake of fire. All righty. So, um, yeah. So, uh, Albert A. Smith's, we, we don't have a text for what the missionaries said when they, mm -hmm. they presented that chart, but we have sources that allow us to reconstruct. So, the first time I saw one of those charts was long after I'd become a member of the reorganization, which I became a member in 1975 as a, as a college freshman. Um, and there was a long time in the reorganization when the missionary tool was called the Go Ye and Teach slide series. And depending on which missionary or 70 used or tweaked the series, there were anywhere from five to seven sets of slides that you 
would watch over a series of nights that were your introduction to the church. And it included, you know, who is Jesus and what kind of church did he start and how did the church fall away and and how did Joseph Smith restore it and what, what does it have in it? And then all the way to, you know, uh, end, end time stuff, right? So by the time that you got to the end of the slide series, uh, when you were, if if you agreed to be baptized, when you were baptized into the older organization, um, you had a, a fairly clear idea of what the church believed on a lot of things. But this was, most of this was done orally, right? But uh, community of Christ's church culture is highly oral, uh, even though we've, you can find lots of written texts, of course, but but lots of things we do are very oral. And so we don't have a full script that went with the old chart. However, if you read Albert A. Smith's book, Restoration of Study and Prophecy, that's the closest thing we have to what that chart had on it and what it was about. So um, basically the theory of the book is that the restoration was predicted in biblical prophecy. Um, Albert A., of course, knew nothing about the critical critical interpretation of the Bible or the Hebrew prophets, none of that. Uh, very literalistic, very simple. He had minimal to no understanding of ancient or medieval church history. He he works with uh, he works with that old <laughs> that that favorite old old saw in re, in the reorganization that that the Book of Revelation when it talks about the church, the woman going into the wilderness for twelve hundred and sixty days, that actually means years and. That tells us that the original church went into apostasy in 570 AD is how they would say it. And it was restored in 1830. He walks through all that stuff. By the way, that little particular thing came from a reorganization apologist named Daniel McGregor from the late 18, early 1900s. So we can thank him for that, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. So very literalistic, very, very simple and even simplistic in its theology. Um, it, it has minimal to no critical historical knowledge of the of the you know the restoration movement there's obviously no awareness that there's multiple versions of joseph's first vision so on the chart there are two personages depicted unlike what should be one which is the earliest version of joseph's experience so you know elbert a walks through this kind of stuff and that that book because it now has the smith imprimatur on it has a lot of authority among church people. That's 1945, and then it goes through reprintings, of course. Um, I mentioned in the lecture that as as recently as the early 1990s, Charmaine and I were visiting a small RLDS at the time, but Community of Christ Congregation, <laughs> in, in, a, in a galaxy far, far away. The safest where, way to share that information, yes. Where they were still studying Albert A. Smith's Restoration of Study and Prophecy. So this, this old RLDS theology had a long half-life. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. Like 50 three, years later. Yeah, and, and two and a half decades after the radical theological shift that the reorganization went through, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, there's still people talking about, uh, you know, 18... Yeah, you know, 570 AD and 1830 in the 1260 years, right? So, so that's kind of uh, Albert A's theological framework. He's he's an apologist for 
late 19th century, early 20th century reorganization faith. Um, that's his framework. I refer to him in the, the lecture using a phrase from that Paul Edwards uses for uh, the difference. But Paul Edwards in, in his little one volume history, of the church says kind of a difference between Joseph III and Fred M is that Joseph III was an old world man and Fred M was a new world man, right? It's the difference between, in a sense, it's almost the difference between pre-modernity and modernity in the church in the space of, of a father and a son. And Albert A. Smith is an old world man, right? Even though he lives till almost 1960, uh, he, he, still, he still thinks in, and, and why wouldn't he? he still, I'm just gonna say he still thinks in old kind of literal, simple theological categories that were part of the reorganization's apologetic. We're not Mormons, we're not Protestants. We're the one true church. We're going to prove it to you. And then a series of Bible proof texts to show that we have what the early church had. Um, you know, he, he wouldn't have had access to any other kind of knowledge anyway, but that's that was his framework. All right. So that's him. Well, along comes Chevelle. And now the th thing about <clears throat> the thing about Chevelle. Well, there's lots of things about Chevelle. <laughs> He he you you could you could literally do a whole university graduate course on Chevelle. He wrote so much. But his theological framework is fairly straightforward to tie down. And like lots of I will say, like lots of brilliant people, one of the things he wants to always say is, I thought this all up by myself. But oh no, no, no. When you read Chevelle if you know anything about the history of Christian thought, especially modern Christian thought, you can you can easily you can easily place Cheville as an early 20th century modernist or liberal figure. That is, his his way of thinking about faith issues is shaped by what we would call Protestant liberalism, a a movement that begins in the United States begins roughly in in the 1800s and goes through very fa very various phases, still exists today. Um, but essentially the Protestant liberalism that Cheville was formed by and an inheritor of is a it's it's progressive in terms of how it sees faith. It's socially progressive but not socially revolutionary. It is liberal Protestant theology was the theology of educated elites who were trying to figure out how to make sense of their Christian beliefs in light of modern science, uh, modern economics, modern psychology. How do we do that? And so Cheville shares many traits with that movement. And at at um, University of Chicago, oh he, he studied with I mean he studied with really important uh, figures in in the liberal tradition. Um, so uh, yeah, he's he's the University of Chicago was the flagship theological school representing uh, early modern uh, liberal theology in the United States. So that means the adoption of basic biblical criticism, right? So they were teaching at Chicago that the Pentateuch uh, has multiple sources and multiple authorship. They're connected to European scholarship, and so they're raising questions, legitimate questions about 
the uh, authorship of Isaiah. Um, they they were very much into social gospel thinking, the idea that somehow Christianity should impact the society positively. They were shaped by pragmatist and functionalist philosophies. Seville is very much shaped by functionalist and pragmatist philosophies. And these philosophies are going to hold that we, we don't have access to the ultimate truth of things. We have what we have access to is how do things function in people's lives, right? And this this comes through in Chaville's theology in that so Chaville does not ever offer a significant critique of uh, the early restoration movement. Um, he he tends to bypass things like polygamy. And uh, Joseph's theological uh, train wreckage in Nauvoo, in, in my view, um, he he's more interested in do I how do ideas work in people's lives, and do they help produce mature, thoughtful, ethically minded people? As a pragmatist, those are the ideas you want to pursue. You're not going to ask questions about what is the ultimate essence of things. You're going to ask questions about. Um, does this particular idea create a mature, healthy person or not? So this, this, is, this is where Chaville's theology is, is tolerable in the church of his day. Because he's not, he's not going to critique anything except uh, shallow, uh, magical uses of the tradition. Right? So he, he's... Uh, He's he he's fine with not asking serious historical questions of the Book of Mormon. He's more interested in how the narrative might work in people's lives, and so he writes a book called "The Book of Mormon Speaks for Itself," um, in which he simply, essentially, in my view, bypasses the critical questions. He doesn't ever go deep on those kinds of critical questions. But for his students at Grace University, he will push on their religious frameworks and try to help them deconstruct what he considers childish views of religion. Right. He he's interested in in the formation of personalities who are self-actualizing, self-acting, who want to you know, who will who, who, who see themselves as partners with God in creating a different kind of a future. But he doesn't you know, his he Chaville is anti-supernaturalist. He doesn't he doesn't think of God as outside of things. That's very much in, within the framework of uh, Protestant liberalism. Um, he's not interested in questions like virgin birth and he's more interested in uh, Jesus. You can actually follow and what Jesus taught and so on. That's very characteristic of the liberal tradition. And, um, yeah, he wants to see how things will, will, will function in people's lives. So the problem is that he is willing to ask some critical questions and he is willing to push on things that an old line restoration thinker shaped by Albert A would have trouble with. I'll give you an example. So this is the example I use in the lecture. So there, there was this old reorganization tradition, I'll call it uh, an eschatological, an end time tradition, that before the church could build Zion, there would have to come this supernatural experience that the old timers called the endowment. 
Now, in reorganization thought, the endowment was not something you got when you were ordained. It was something that was going to happen to the whole church in the future. And their image for it came out of their memories and mythology going back to the Kirtland Temple. So this, there was this widespread tradition in the reorganization that there was going to be a future event, uh, kind of like, you know, the, 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 like the day of Pentecost, but way pumped up. And it was going to, it was going to just sort of like, uh, give community of Christ, well, reorganization people, it was going to be like this giant spiritual energy drink that just made the church finish the task of Zion. It would it would turn people with no particular uh, medical training into healers. We wouldn't need medical training anymore. Um, it was you know it was it was uh, pure magic in one sense, right? So this was a widespread tradition in the reorganization. This thing you hoped for, uh, people anticipated that someday we would build a temple and it would happen that the endowment would happen there, and then. All of a sudden, the whole world would be able to recognize that we were the true church. It was all, that's what endowment theology was. And Elbray would have, you know, his, his theology would have aligned with that kind of supernaturalist thinking. Well, Cheville, uh, right around 1970 or so, writes a book called Expectations for Endowed Living. Cheville is very skeptical of this traditional kind of thinking. Cheville believes that human personality doesn't work that way, and that human personality works by stages, by growth. He's very you know, psychologically, sociologically attuned. So human personality grows. We make choices. We learn things. God, be, we need to think of God as our 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 partner as we do this work together, and. Endowed, he, he would rather think of you know endowed living, li- living that that is for a greater purpose, and that's been uh, deepened and heightened by further education, rather than a sort of supernatural divine outburst that just turns us all into miracle workers. He's not into that, right? So, so that's that sets up kind of the difference between a Cheville kind of thinker and an old Albert A kind of thinker. So, so I, yeah. I see a I see an automatic issue here. Uh-huh. If I'm looking at this from outside and I see these two conflicting ideas of the church, one one of these is a is a person in a role of uh, at that time presiding patriarch, which is a very kind of spiritual blessing leadership, and the other is um, influencing the minds of young people. Right. This can be a problem. Yeah, well, and you know, Cheville is highly trained in then modern educational theory and sociological theory and psychology. I mean, <laughs> when you look at the number of titles of books Cheville wrote, I mean, Cheville wrote on marriage, for goodness sakes, and he wrote on spirituality, and he wrote on theology, and he wrote on the Book of Mormon. He very he wrote a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. um, all with this very highly uh progressive functionalist pragma- pragmatist sort of framework uh in it and um yeah you you can you can see tensions here but uh, let me set let me set up one of the other tensions one of the other tensions was that um 
and people can read Mark Shear's, uh, I believe this would be in his third volume of Mark Shear's history. So apparently Israel A. Smith uh, had somehow promised Albert A. that Albert A.'s son, I think his name was Lynn, would be going into the presiding evangelist role. Then Israel A. dies in a car wreck. W. Wallace becomes the new president of the church. W. Wallace changes that to Roy Cheville. So that creates certain tensions. Um, some of the restorationist sects today look at that as the beginning of apostasy. Um, mm. Right, that somehow there was not a Smith in that role. Now, Cheville would have seen that as magical thinking too, um, as kind of a kind of a, a weird supernaturalism that somehow the the role had to go with a Smith name. Um, yeah, he he would have thought that was kind of not very helpful. He would have asked, "What does that actually do for you? How does that <laughs> how does mm-hmm. that impact your spirituality? Right? Um, how does that make you become a better person?" So, but there was that, there was a little bit of tension around that. I think that tension came out more later than in, in Cheville's own time. But, but here's the thing. So Cheville as a pragmatist, functionalist, kind of RLDS modernist, he's okay with people using the Book of Mormon and referring to Joseph and Emma, uh, because what he's interested in is how do those ideas work to create a community that has a vision vision of the world? Um, how do those ideas work in people's lives to create people who are open to growing with God? That's kind of his sort of language. How do those ideas work to create enthusiastic people who who want to want to you know um, to help create a different kind of of social order? Um, as long as the ideas did that, Cheville can work with them. But the difference is that an Albert A. person would have seen doctrines, like literal verbal expressions, as truths, as, as truths that could not be changed. Whereas a Chevillist would say, that's not what these that's not what these are about. These are not about giving us eternal information. The question is, does the verbiage help us? function better as human beings. And if it doesn't, we change the verbiage, right? So endowment for Shavilla no longer is this, this supernatural wow thing that's supposed to happen in the future that keeps us disempowered until it happens, right? We can't do anything until the endowment comes. No, for Shavilla, endowment has to become a, an active functional category about human improvement and advancement, right? That's, that's where the term endowment then becomes meaningful. But you can see that tension between those two points of view, right? Those two points of view, one of the things I'm arguing in the lecture is that already in the 1940s and 50s with these two different kinds of points of view, um, you see what's going, there's going to be a collision or, or I refer to it as a storm, but we'll use the collision image. There's going to be a collision between these simple literal ideas that, that think the 1912 preaching chart was the last best thing God said. And a functionalist like Chevelle who's like, you know, we, we need to do some updating and we need to find some new ways to phrase things. And we need to see if our conceptualities actually work. So right. What happened? What was the collision? Well, a collision happened in the 1960s and 70s when in the reorganization, 
for lots of reasons. We've I think we've talked about these in other podcasts and others have too. But you know when when in, when in the early 1960s, um, for a variety of reasons, the church is trying to spread into Asia, but realizing that the preaching chart just doesn't work. <laughs> right, the old RLDS theology has no relevance or credibility anywhere else. So what do we do? And so we start engaging with other Christians rather than trying to talk them down, rather than trying to berate them as less thans. We start learning from other Christian groups. We we start making space for critical historiography, right? Nauvoo Kingdom on the Mississippi and raising new questions about our history. Um, we start taking a whole new look at the New Testament and asking appropriate literary and interpretive questions. Does the New Testament actually teach that there's one original church? Well, no, actually it doesn't teach that, right? So uh, all these cultural, theological, educational, mental shifts that begin happening in the 60s, that's the collision. But my argument is that if you look, if you look at Albert A. Smith's theology and Roy Chaville's theology, as far back as the 1940s, what you see is you you can you can see that that those trains are going to collide eventually, even if they don't in the person of Albert A. and Roy Chaville, and they don't. Right. These are two very gracious, loving individuals. They their 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 theologies, as far as I know, do not collide in any kind of public way in their lifetimes. But um, it was a very ugly collision in the life of the church when it did happen, when the yes. theologies did finally start to. Um, interact with one another. It was a very painful time. Yes, it was. Sixties and seventies. I mean, that whole period from say, I would say, nineteen sixty to nineteen eighty-six. That's that's the whole shaking of the churches right down to its foundations. Um, and what begins to emerge out of that is Community of Christ. On the one hand, right, Community of Christ, but then restorationist groups who are still holding on to kind of like a an Albert A. Smith vision of the church uh, at that point. So, yeah, but I think, I think it's a mistake to believe that somehow uh, mystically in the 1960s, external forces, uh, external evil forces somehow reshaped a church. No, it wasn't evil forces. It was different frameworks. These frameworks were already present in the period from 1930 to 1960. uh, You find Lots of church leaders beginning to draw on the theologies of primarily Protestant theologians. And you find church leaders beginning to ask questions and beginning to wonder about the relevance of RLDS ideas. And they don't yet have a a theological canopy in which to frame that very well, but they're asking those kinds of questions, right? So if Fred M. Smith using but not attributing <laughs> the Walter Rauschenbusch social gospel theology. And you have um, F. Henry F. Henry Edwards and Arthur Oakman freely using various kinds of mid-20th century Anglican theology. Um, so dare we that, say the name William Temple? Yes. Yes, we can say to me he's Saint William Temple. I I love the, the theology of Archbishop William Temple. Um, but yeah, right. William Temple, uh, Charles Gore, another great Anglican theologian 
uh, 20th century. Barry Fosdick, a very popular preacher of the day. All right. Yeah. So I, I do not believe the reorganization was somehow uh, magically insulated from other theological visions or influences. Uh, and that, and that through faithlessness, leaders let that down in the sixties. I think that's, I think that's a, a false narrative. Um, so that was kind of one of the, one of the fun things to work through Albert A and, and Roy Chabille and, and see, see already in, in their work, um, where the collision is going to happen way down, you know, 30, 40 years down the road. Embedded in a culture that was radically shook up and changing in the 1960s and early 1970s, civil rights, the women's movement, all kinds of different things. Um, some people would say that the church is wrong to be influenced by culture. What would you say to that? I would say I'd like to see a church that's not influenced by culture. Uh, they don't exist. Um, <laughs> so you, you are either... Uh, you are either critically aware of the culture you are influenced by, or you're naively not aware of it. Um, and so, one one could one could say that the 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 church, you know, the reorganization of the 1950s was critically unaware of being part of the Donna Reed culture, right? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, uh, th this is that post World War II return to patriarchy and. The church just kind of, most churches just kind of sucked right back into that, and so, so yeah, you, you, there is no such thing as a Christianity that has no is not connected to culture. The question is of critical awareness and how you how you choose to engage with the culture. So, so what does this experience of uh, really the the transition period of being, as you said, an old world looking perspective, uh, faith community to being a uh, future oriented, a discipleship oriented. We could use that word when you talk about this um, very practical, very pragmatic, functional way of that Cheville saw of faith. What does that have to say to us about how we experience diverse theological perspectives and leadership today, or even in congregational life today? Yeah, well, um, I think I probably should say that, uh, you know, philosophically, I'm, I'm not a pragmatist like Cheville was. And I, I think uh, the idea that something, the idea that something uh, that f functions well in human lives is functionally true is problematic to me because one could say that in white in white supremacist cultures racism functions well in people's lives and it's like mm, I don't think we want to say that mm -mm. I think we need I think we need some other way to assess phenomena and Cheville you know Cheville is very much embedded in the early early 20th century American philosophy and so he's not he doesn't have the tools to go there or the willingness to go there I'm not sure it could be a little of both um, it had to be left to others that came after Right, right. Um, now, I, I should I should say, by the way, uh, I Charmaine and I use some of Cheville's World Conference sermons from towards the end of his ministry with our Community of Christ Theology classes, and boy, his his World Conference sermons when he was presiding evangelist, they're they're quite uh, aggressive and powerful, uh, and you can 
you can watch him slapping literalists right in the face from, <laughs> you know, uh, it, he, he will, he will publicly from the pulpit in the auditorium during world conference, criticize the idea that Zion is a, Zion, we should view Zion as a kind of a city of refuge where we can be all safe and secure while the, the world around us goes to hell. He'll just lambast that idea right from the pulpit. Um, or or the idea that somehow we, we, sh- we shouldn't be trying in other places besides Jackson County, Missouri to, to build what we would call today signal communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he'll, he, he will mince no words with, with stuff like that. He's, uh, I, I, would say in I've not heard church leaders of his stature in my day be that publicly critical of theologies held by <laughs> by by many members uh, as Chevelle was. He could get away with it, mm-hmm. but he could get away with it because he spent a lot of time uh, not just at Graceland teaching, but out in congregations and out in, in districts, which we had at the time, districts and stakes. He was always out doing stuff, and he traveled some internationally too. Um, so he he loved being with church people. Uh, he's he's kind. He, he strikes me. I didn't know him, but he strikes me as a kind of uh, mothership extrovert. They just absolutely loved being in the limelight and being with people. At, and and uh, and when he was, he was all <laughs> he was he was going to be he was going to be. Uh, to use the astrophysical phenomenon, it's going to be like a like a black hole, and the, all energy and matter within his sphere was going to be sucked into him. He was going to be pretty central in those <laughs> in those those events. So, but my my point is that he he was he could also be he he had built that kind of credibility with church people, and was could be extremely pastoral and very thoughtful with individuals in, in pastoral situations. That's something he shared with Albert A. Smith. So he spends, he spends decades building up that kind of credibility. And then he is able then publicly to critique, uh, critique views that church members held that are, that he would view as not theologically very sound or substantial or not very helpful. So but I kind of went off a different direction there. Pull me back to your question, Karen. <laughs> but what I asked is we went through this experience as a community where two diverse theological perspectives came up against each other um, in it, it, with leadership. We heard we, yeah. we transitioned in this way. So what does that say to how we handle that now, diverse theological perspectives in leadership oh, sure. and even in congregational life? Yeah, well, first of all, we need to... One thing we can learn from uh, Albert A. and from Rushville is that different theological paradigms exist within the community already. And so uh, not ignoring that or pretending that isn't true will not help us at all. So you have you have to accept what is right. And what is is that there's different theological paradigms. One one of the great uh, and amazing surprises for me in doing this work was we still sing we still sing an Albert A hymn in our in, in our hymnal and we still have a few I think four Reichsville hymns in our hymnal and I took a look at the one Albert A hymn which is Silvery Star it's a Christmas hymn it's an absolutely gorgeous Christmas hymn 
And when you when you read the lyrics, what's interesting is that there's to me there's no trace of the old reorganization preaching chart. There's no trace of the apostasy and the falling away. And Joseph is the true prophet, and we are the true churches. None of that. What comes into the foreground in that hymn is Christ and the disciples' journey. That's that's in the foreground of the Solary Star. And then if you go to Roy Cheville's great hymn, uh, Send Forth Your Light, O Zion, which we still sing, it's the same thing. In other words, when you when you when you step outside of them articulating their theologies and go to poetry, go to hymnody, you see this um, all of a sudden you see this amazing confluence. And one of the great discoveries for me is that uh, I guess it was a I, I'll call it a rediscovery, but I didn't kind of expect to see it here, but I I did, and that is that. These two figures with such different frameworks and frameworks that were going to collide eventually in the church and lead to to break up uh, and a complete reformation of the church. These two figures, when they're singing about Jesus and discipleship and Zion, they were singing kind of about the same stuff. Mm-hmm. In other words, so that so that uh, speaking out of my framework. Christology becomes the way to transcend the differences, right? Uh, in other words, if you can if you can stay focused on Jesus, because <laughs> uh, it's kind of simplistic, really, but if you can stay focused on the figure of Jesus and on the the demands of following him, you have you have a way that transcends the differences. Doesn't d- get rid of the differences. Uh, doesn't mean there won't be arguments and disputes, but it. It transcends the differences in uh, a, a helpful way, and I think that's what they were able to do. And as far I said, as far as I know, these two figures never publicly critiqued each other. And in fact, there's a one of uh, Roy Cheville's uh, conference sermons, one of those on Zion, where he's being very critical. He actually quotes Albert A. on the topic of Zion in a a really a wonderful, wonderful way. I think I may reference that in the in the lecture if people want to pay attention to that or in the, or in the question and answer that was after it. But but um, so these these two men seemingly valued each other's ministries even with their differences. Um, as far as I know, did not take their differences public. <laughs> right? Did not did not try to say you know uh, talk the other you know, talk down about the other or anything like that. Um, no trash talking. No, yes, yeah, the word I want. No trash talking of the other. Um, if they had disagreements, or I, I, I've got, I've got to be sure that Elber A heard Rachel say things sometimes publicly that just made him shiver inside. I can't imagine not, but and probably vice versa. Mm-hmm. But they didn't, they didn't run with that. They stayed focused on the Jesus story and on the following, and. I think there's a lot to learn from that for us today. Um, Yeah. So when you um, when you began to kind of uh, unpack this and form your lecture and go forward, what did you see that you could identify as maybe some pieces of their influences in the theology and practice of community of Christ today? Yeah. Um, 
Well, a number of things that are, are going to come across as kind of practical. I mean, both men had deep pastoral instincts, and that continues to be very important in the role of presiding evangelist in the church. That is, in lots of ways, the presiding evangelist is the pastor to the whole church. And you can see that in both Cheville and in Albert A. Um, I think, you know, in some ways, this is a difficult question to answer because contributions that people make, sometimes the ones that count the most are the ones that are invisible and that historians would never pick up on. Mm-hmm. So we, we, don't, we don't have access to all of the ways that both of these figures offered a, a well-placed word. Um, a, a, a kindly half hour listening to someone who was struggling, uh, and somehow that lifted that member to some new level in their in their journey. We don't have access to that, and those are the things that count. Those are they they count a lot, but the historians don't know that don't know about those usually unless somebody you know recounts it in the diary. Um, I've mentioned hymnody. I think their their hymnody. We're still singing some of their hymns. Now, I'm not typically a fan of Cheville's hymns, but but Send Forth Thy Light, O Zion is a great one. And I, and I truly, truly love that. Um, I think Cheville's influence is very strong still in terms of, you know, theological education matters. And preparation of any kind for ministry matters. And that that ministry ministry is it's it's both divine grace and human preparation working side by side. I think you said Graceland still matters. That's definitely a, you know, a Cheville inheritance. Um, Zion still matters. And that's from both of them, even though uh, we might, we might think of Zion in in even more global terms uh, and certainly in more social justice terms than either of these figures would have thought. It still matters in community of Christ's thought. So um, those are some things I can think of right off where their influence is still present. Like I say, uh, the, inf- the influence of church leaders is, is, I mean, sorry for the hackneyed expression, but it's more like 11. It's, it's, it's often invisible, and it's often in terms of the personal relationships that they have created, fostered, nurtured, and where they've, you know, where, where a church leader has, in a conversation, helped someone just you know, find their way to a new level of creativity and faithfulness in terms of church life. So those are hard to track. So as you did your research and prepare, did you gain? Did you gain any uh, new insight or discover something that was previously unknown to you? At least, was there any like epiphany that you get that yeah. you uh, received? I've sort of hinted at this, but I, there's still there's still among church members who, <laughs> I, I will say, who are my age and older, <laughs> um, who have, who have uh, ec- existential connections still to the older reorganization. There's still a sense that somehow before the ni- late 1960s, the church was, a, was living in a golden age mm-hmm. where we were just constantly baptizing new members, um, never minded that that our baptismal rate followed the national birth rate. I'm just saying um, there was some other kind of work going on there, but so, but th- there's this, this kind of false image that, the, that somehow the church before, before the leaders messed it up in the 1960s right. was in a golden age. 
um, where everything was good and right and calm and undisturbed and there was perfect unity. And it's like, uh, no, <laughs> no, that ignores that ignores. First of all, that ignores something like um, the great struggle uh, around supreme directional control in the 1920s. I mean, that, that literally split off a bunch of members, but also ignores the fact that there were different theological frameworks already in the church. Right. And, and so what, however unity was expressed, it was not uniformity of thought. Right. So that was a really important discovery, but here's one of the cool things that happened out of the lecture. So, uh, it was a day or so after the lecture, uh, got a, got a, call on my cell phone out of the blue from a number I didn't recognize. Uh, I, I don't know how the person got my cell phone number, but <laughs> it was Roy Cheville's daughter, right? Charlotte. And we had the most wonderful phone conversation. It was so cool. Uh, so uh, Charlotte would be my parents' age, like in, their, in, in her 80s. And she said, she said, I just want to let you know the family was listening in last night. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we had the most wonderful chat. Um, and it, it turns out that that she and her husband and Charmaine and I are going to meet up in October in person uh, and have some coffee together and, and talk. But she she affirmed a number of things that I had shared about about her dad and and uh she she seems a fascinating, interesting individual in her own right, who was able to kind of go head to head with her dad. Uh, you know, he was she, a pretty forceful guy. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. And and she said, told me this one little story where she where she said back to him, basically, "Hey, you taught me to think for myself." <laughs> <laughs> he taught uh, a number of Graceland students to think for themselves as well. Right. Right. And when your own kids start thinking for themselves, that yeah, be a little, <laughs> but so, yeah, so uh, that was fascinating. What a and, wonderful thing to have happen. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It also reminds you that community of Christ, uh, as Charmaine likes to say, does not have a family tree. We have a family shrub and <laughs> like all the branches and roots are kind of like, maybe it's a family hedge. I don't know. It's like all the branches and roots are intertwined and, and, uh, you have to be careful who you're talking about. <laughs> Just a heads up to all our listeners. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that, that that was a great experience that came out of this, and I'm I'm really looking forward to a chance to talk to Charlotte in person, and uh, you know, find, get get the other the other perspectives, other you know, a family members' perspectives on their on their dad. Uh, so yeah, cool. That was cool. So, Tony, one of the reasons um, I appreciate these episodes on Cup of Joe that deal with church history is not just a love of history, but also because I think that um, exploring our history helps us understand more about our own uh, journey of discipleship. Mm -hmm. So this question is more about you in the sense that what from each of these men's lives has influenced you the most, or maybe another way to say it is what is most meaningful to you in your discipleship? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a very rich question. Um, is that a nice way to say you don't want to answer? 
No, it's not. I'm thinking okay. on. So I think I could say that the RLDS missionary who introduced me to the church and taught me the Go Ye and Teach slides back in 1974 and 5 um, was a kind of an interesting combination of Roy Cheville openness to the new and Albert A. Smith doctrinal distinctiveness. And he reflected this, this uh, community of Christ missionary, self-sustaining missionary in Michigan, uh, who is one of my first mentors. Uh, he, he reflected in his own person, these two sides, right? The, the Albert A. Smith, go ye and teach. Uh, we have the one true gospel, blah, 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 that side. And then the Rochelle, let's see if we can put that in some better categories and, and avoid some of the false supernaturalisms and, and see if we can steer that in a more personally, ethically help, healthy way. Both of those things were present in my, my first mentor. Um, so those things were and are present in me, but in my theological journey, I've had to learn how to critique both things uh, and move move into some territory far beyond where I was then. Um, and that created stresses with my mentor while he was still alive. Um, for example, he was a big proponent of the Book of Mormon. I am not, right? Um, I think the Book of Mormon is fraught with all kinds of issues. That can be the topic for another time. Um, I do not. I do not see the first fourteen years of our church history as kind of any kind anything like a golden age. I I, I tend to see it as like a science experiment that went really wrong <laughs> and, and uh, ended in a theological debacle, and that uh, I'll use the word miraculously coming out of that, a group of people in the eighteen fifties formed what would become a reorganization. It would be on a totally different trajectory from that experience that would lead to what is a, a progressive, socially transforming international group called Community of Christ today that, uh, that I'm very pleased to belong to, right? very pleased to serve in. So, um, yeah, so those are, I mean, those are things that have come out of this experience. I think... Uh, I, because, because there's still a little bit of both the Albert A and the Roy Cheville in me from my mentor. Um, I still like things like prayer services, which we don't do much anymore, but I still like things like prayer services. And, um, I still use terms like Zion and, uh, I still like the idea of endowment in a more of a Roy Cheville kind of way. And uh, I still think of Zion in terms of spiritual condition. But unlike both of them, I, I also want to speak of Zion in terms of social transformation. So I don't know. So those those are things that, you know, kind of float around in me from that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I represent community of Christ as it is today. That's where my home is. That's what I represent uh, formally and officially and, and personally. But I'm also 
very much at home with people like William Temple and Paul Tillich and Karl Barth and uh, a whole host of others. So, yeah. So as we bring our conversation to a close, Tony, I want to ask you, you titled this Storm Clouds on the Horizon. Mm -hmm. Do we have some storm clouds on the horizon that you can identify at this point in our journey? Yes, we do. Um, the, the main storm cloud is connected to the problem of nationalism, right? And that's not just an American problem. That's a problem in lots of places. Are we going to knee jerk back to nationalist identities and protecting our own in the face of a rapidly changing world? Or is the church, you know, and, and is that going to happen then in the church? Mm -hmm. Or is the church going to try and be uh, a forerunner of a different kind of being, right? A different kind of communal being. That's, that's, that's going to be a struggle. That's right, right in front of us. Um, will the church be a place where we can deal with the absolutely abysmal problem of racism, right? Which is not just American, mm -hmm. though we have a horrible history of denial. But it's also Canadian. It's you can find it pretty much anywhere, right? Will will the church be a place where uh, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, etc., right? Where where we will we will learn to practice um, openness to all people uh, and, and and put an end to you know the practice of of racism. Um, so there there's in the United States, of course, there's the problem of the political polarization that that affects the church. And how, can the church can the church be non-political? Actually, no. Jesus' gospel is political. When you talk about the reign of God, when you talk about uh, you know I, good news for the poor, and so on. Um, when you when you say that Christ is God incarnate, He represents every person, then that's going to set you against uh, fascism, nationalism, any kind of xenophobia or hatred of the foreigner or the other. Um, but that plants a smack dab in the middle of political controversies, certainly in the United States, but elsewhere too. So those are some of the storm clouds we're facing. They're, they're, and they're, they're actually not on the horizon. They're kind of, this, this storm is already it's already thundering and lightning. So <laughs> swirling about us a bit. It is. Yeah. So how will we follow Jesus into that storm and remain a community? Well, Tony, I want to thank you for joining us today here at um, Cup of Joe. And I want to point our listeners to your lecture on the historic sites foundation.org website, where along with the lecture, you can also hear Tony's responses to the multiple questions that were asked after the lecture. And before the lecture, you can hear the two hymns that Tony referenced, one written by Rocheville and one written by Albert A. Smith, and take part in that as well. So again, this is Cup of Joe, which is part of the Project Zion podcast. I'm Karen Peter. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Project Zion podcast. 
Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 